0: Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you're about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts or for the Faith Working radio show podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. This particular sermon is entitled, Forgive Us Our Debts, and as the title suggests, it concerns the petition in the Lord's Prayer where Jesus teaches us to ask the Father to forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. If you are like me, that petition causes a cluster of questions to pop up in your mind, and if it doesn't, then Jesus' commentary immediately after the Lord's Prayer surely will. For Jesus explains that if we do not forgive those who have trespassed against us, neither will the Father forgive us our trespasses against Him. Why does Jesus link our forgiveness to our forgiving of others? Is forgiving others some sort of work by which we must earn our own forgiveness? Is it some sort of ritual act we must do to qualify for forgiveness? Is unforgiveness of others the unforgivable sin? If not, isn't it covered by the cross of Christ like other sins? And while we're at it, why do we need to ask for forgiveness at all, if we have already been forgiven in Christ? Aren't all our sins, past, present, and future, covered in Christ? And why does Jesus refer to our sins as debts? The answers to those questions are as surprising as they are profound. To hear them, you will have to listen to the sermon. I hope you enjoy it. Thanks for listening. Well, we're continuing our consideration of the Lord's Prayer as we work our way through the Gospel of Matthew. And this morning we come to verse 12 of Matthew chapter 6, um, which is one of the petitions Jesus tells us to pray. But I want us to go into this so we have a little bit of context. I want us to read verse 9, which gives us the introduction to the prayer then verse 12, and then verses 14 and 15, because the petition of verse 12, which has to do with asking for forgiveness as we forgive, is the only part of the Lord's Prayer that Jesus follows up immediately with some commentary. So we're going to read verse 9 and 12, and then 14 and 15. This is the Word of God. In this manner, therefore, pray, Our Father who art in heaven, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Let's ask God to bless our consideration of his word. Our God and Father, we thank you for your word that you've given to us for hope, to build us up in faith, to build us up in love, that we might walk with you, know eternal life and glorify you, And we pray that by the power of the Spirit now you would bring this word to us. That you would strengthen us and encourage us to your glory. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Jesus starts off the Lord's Prayer by telling us to pray for God's, the Father's name to be hallowed, for His kingdom to come, for His will to be done. And when we pray that, as we've already seen, we're implicitly offering ourselves in the service of those things. We're implicitly offering our whole selves and our whole lives in the service of God's name, His kingdom, and His will. And then Jesus has us ask the Father for what we need to serve Him in this way, <clears throat> which is really just another way of saying He has us ask the Father for what we need to live, for what we need to be fulfilled. Uh, and to be made happy as human beings, because this is really what life is all about. From the Garden of Eden, Satan has posed this great doubt that comes our way as human beings about whether there isn't a divergence between the glory of God and the will of God and our own happiness and our fulfillment. That was at the base of the temptation of the Garden of Eden, and it's at the base of all temptation that comes our way as well. And that we see in Christ, Christ who faced the cross, Christ who faced the worst injustice in human history, that even in that moment, Christ's own good, Christ's own joy, we're told it was the joy set before him that caused him to endure the cross, his own glorification was all bound up in the will of the Father, even at that darkest moment of human history. And so this is our great assurance that there's never truly a divergence between the will of God and the glory of the Father and our own fulfillment, our own happiness, our own joy, and our own good. So, Jesus has us pray to the Father for three great needs. The need for provision, give us this day our daily bread. The need to forgive and be forgiven. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And then the need for protection. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And today, of course, we're considering the second of those great needs, the need to forgive and be forgiven. And Jesus connects these two things. He connects forgiving and being forgiven, and He does it three times so that we don't miss it. He first does it in verse 12, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And notice the logical sequence of that sentence, which is the reverse order of the sentence itself, at least in English. Because our being forgiven, we're asking God to forgive us as we forgive. Then Jesus brings it up again in verse 14, He states it positively. This is the principle. If you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. And then in verse 15, he turns it around and states the principle negatively. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. This is the principle that's in operation behind this petition when we pray for God the Father to forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now, If we're thinking at all, there's a whole cluster of questions that's going to pop up in our minds when we uh, hear these words from Jesus or when we pray this prayer. Why does Jesus link our forgiveness to our forgiving of others? Is forgiveness of others some sort of work by which we must earn our own forgiveness? Is it some sort of ritual act by which we must qualify for forgiveness? Is, is failure to forgive others the unforgivable sin? If so, is, if it's not the unforgivable forgivable sin, isn't it covered by the cross of Christ like other sins? And while we're at it, why do we need to ask for forgiveness at all if we have already been forgiven in Christ? Aren't all of our sins, past, present, and future, covered by the blood of Christ? And for that matter, why does Jesus here refer to our sins as debts? And then going back to what we already asked, well, didn't Jesus pay for all our debts? Now, when we have these kind of questions pop up in our minds, have you ever had any of these questions pop up in your minds? When you read these words of Jesus... We tend to have two reactions. We tend to react one way or the other, both of which I don't think are the proper way. We either ask those questions, we don't see any immediate solution to them, and we get offended. We're offended with God. Some people walk off from the faith because of offenses like that. Others just kind of carry a wound and a distance between them and God because of this. The other reaction we tend to have is these questions pop up in our mind. No immediate solution is apparent, and so we suppress them. We press them down. We feel guilty. I'm not supposed to think that way. I'm not supposed to ask those questions. That's not faith. I'm just supposed to believe. And so we push them down very quickly before God knows what we're thinking. At least that's the way we think. There's a lot of ways in which we never stop being little kids, you know. We tend to keep doing that well. Push that thought out before God knows, before he hears it. Well, I don't think either one of those uh, responses is right. I think Jesus wants us to ask these questions because that's part of the process that we've already seen going on with the Lord's Prayer. Because Jesus here isn't simply giving us things to pray. He is retuning our hearts and our minds by putting his words in our mouths. And... It's a simple prayer. It's not much more than uh, 50 or 60 words long. But just because something is simple doesn't mean it's shallow. So this is a simple prayer full of simple petitions, but still water often runs deep. And that's the case with this prayer. All the simple petitions in this simple prayer presuppose a very deep understanding of God, of ourselves, of our relationship with God, A deep understanding of the world and our relationship to the world. And this deep understanding is radically different than our normal human way of thinking in a fallen world. It's radically different even from our normal way of thinking as disciples of Christ. Our normal way of thinking as Christians. And I think Jesus wants us to ponder these questions in the deep waters of His Word, but do so humbly and prayerfully, looking to the Father for understanding. He wants us to understand what we're asking. He wants us to understand why we are asking it. And this is all part of allowing the Lord's Prayer to have its way with us, to have its transformational effect upon us and through us to the world. So let's consider these questions. Why do we need to ask for forgiveness if we have already been forgiven in Christ? I mean, doesn't the Bible tell us in 1 Peter chapter 2, Jesus Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross? Doesn't the Apostle John tell us in 1 John chapter 2, I am writing to you little children, why? Because your sins have been forgiven you for His name's sake. Doesn't Paul tell us in Romans 4 and 5, Jesus was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. And what's justification? It's to be declared righteous. It's to have a judge declare you to be in the right to be righteous. So he was raised because God has declared us righteous. And Paul goes on, Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God, through whom... Through Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. Now, there's been different times in the history of the Christian church when the predominant view was that the cross of Christ, the blood of Christ, the justification of God, took care of all of our sins up until the point at which we were baptized. But after that point, it doesn't cover that. After that point, We are supposed to walk with God in a perfect way, and if we fail, then there's a whole system of penance and so forth by which we must uh, make atonement ourselves for our sins, and that leads to the doctrine of purgatory and all these other things. But that's not what Paul says. He says, we have been justified, we have been justified through Christ, and we have obtained our introduction into this grace in which we stand. We stand in grace. That's what he says, we stand in it, we breathe it, we swim in it. That's all true. But what we need to recognize is that there's more. For God gave his son and Jesus gave himself not only to forgive us, but to adopt us as children into God's family. And that is the ultimate goal. We tend to place so much emphasis on forgiveness And so much emphasis on justification as evangelicals that we forget that those are means to an end. They're glorious, they're necessary, they're essential, but they're means to an end. And the end is to have us adopted as children into God's family. In Ephesians chapter 1 verse 5, Paul says this, God the Father predestined us to what? To adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. That's the goal. That's what we were created for. That's what God gave his son for. Everything else is essential to make that come to pass. Christ going to the cross, his blood forgiving our sins, our being justified, and so forth. So our forgiveness was necessary, but not the ultimate goal. By the work of Christ, we've been forgiven, reconciled to God, and adopted into his family now. That leads us to the key point that we need to understand as to why we're asking for forgiveness if we're already forgiven in Christ. And this is what you need to know. The Lord's Prayer is the family prayer of God's children. It is not the prayer of criminals to a judge. It is the prayer of children to a father. This prayer... Springs from our relationship to God as our Father, not our relationship to God as our judge. What are the first words Jesus teaches us to pray? Our Father in heaven. In Christ, God as judge has already adjudged us righteous and blameless. But this was all part of restoring us to the relationship to where God is our Father. And this is a relationship in which we must walk for the rest of our lives. As judge, God has adjudged us righteous, clean, forgiven in his sight. But as with God as our Father, that is an ongoing relationship in which we must walk. And walking in family relationships requires asking for forgiveness when we fail to live up to the relationship, Right? What if you have a family where you have people who fall short, they sin, they do things to one another, they fail to give what they should give, and other things like that, but you have a family where nobody asks for forgiveness. Nobody ever says, I was wrong. Nobody ever asks for forgiveness. What kind of family do you have? You have an extremely dysfunctional family. So... We walk in our relationship with God as Father and so we ask forgiveness in light of this. This is the family prayer and this is the perspective from which we regularly confess our sins and ask for forgiveness. It has to do with ongoing relationship. Now, what about the next question? Why does Jesus refer to our sins as debts? As debts. Well, Scripture depicts sin in many different ways. It depicts it as law-breaking, as perversion, as perversion, that is deviating from what God intended. It depicts it as falling short, as rebellion, as pollution, something that defiles us or makes us dirty, and as missing the mark. And sin is all of these things. But in this prayer, Jesus presents our sins as debts. And I think this is very significant because I think Jesus is getting to the very root of sin here. Now, remember why Jesus saved us, so that we might be adopted as children back into God's family. Personal family bonds create obligations. Relationships create obligations, things that we owe by virtue of the relationship. And when we fail to render our obligations, when we fail to render what is owed by virtue of the relationship, we harm the relationship And we harm the people who are in it. And this is where Jesus is coming from when he teaches us to think of our sins as debts. As God's children, what do we owe God as our father? Well, we owe him complete love. We owe him complete loyalty. And we owe God's other children, as well as all of those who were created to be his children, we owe them to love them as ourselves. And these affirmative obligations are expressed, as Jesus tells us, in the two great commandments on which all of the law and the prophets hang, to love God with all that we are and our neighbors as ourselves. Thus, we have this debt of love to God and neighbor, not a debt because we did something wrong. It's not something we owe because we did something wrong. It's something we owe because we're in a relationship. God is our father. And other people are our brothers and our sisters. So we have this debt of love to God and to neighbor. And when we fail to give that which we owe by virtue of these relationships, then we have unpaid debts, which is what Jesus is teaching us to ask forgiveness for. So what do we see from this? And I think we need to think about this a little bit because I really think it's revolutionary. Love is a debt. Love is a debt. And when you think about it, it's a debt unlike any other. Love is the only debt that is always good. Paul says in Romans 13, owe no one anything except to love one another. Owe no one anything except to love one another. Debts are usually bad, right? Most debts indicate we're in some kind of trouble. Debt often makes us the servant of somebody else in a way that God does not intend. Most debts are not good. They're not desirable. Even the ones that are acceptable are not desirable. But Paul talks about debt in a different light when he says, Owe no one anything except except to love one another. So debt is the, love is the only debt that is always good. Next, love is a debt we can never pay we can pay but never pay off. Love is a debt which we can pay but never pay off, because it creates obligations forever. When have you ever loved somebody enough? When have you ever loved God enough? That's not the way we think of it. And when you think about it that love is a debt that we can pay but never pay off, that's true of God as well. Have you ever thought about that? Does love create obligations on God that last forever? Yes, they do. Yes, it does. Third, love is a joyous debt. It is a debt without which we would not be God's image. Because God is love, as John tells us. Because God is love, if we are going to be in God's image, we're going to have the debt of love. Which means it is a joyous debt. As God's children, we're called to be like Him. That's one of the themes of the Sermon on the Mount, that we're to be like the Father who is in heaven. So to truly live is to bear the debt of loving God with all that we are and our neighbor as ourselves. To truly live is to pay these debts joyously, day by day and moment by moment. One of the implications of this truth is that of love being a debt, is that sin at base, then, is a failure to pay a debt. It's an omission. It's a failure to give that which is owed. And when you think about it, all sins of commission are first sins of omission, failures to give something we owe. The saddest sins of all are sins of leaving good undone, of leaving love unexpressed and unfelt. You you often hear of people who uh, a friend has died or a relative has died, and you often hear people, even Christians, express regrets. They said something they shouldn't have. They had a fight with the person. They had an estrangement from the person. Uh, They were impatient with the person before they died. They said something in anger. They did something in anger, whatever. But when you think about it, these regrets that are expressed really come down to a failure and an inability to do something they should have done. The the thing they did was mean or they were angry, they had a fight. It really comes down to a regret that they didn't have or take the opportunity to ask for forgiveness to say that they were sorry, to say that they loved the person. Right? Those are the regrets you so often hear when we lose um, family members or friends, people that we knew. The things we suddenly think of the things we should have done, we should have said, and now we no longer have an opportunity. These are really the saddest things of all. Now, that brings it down to a, you know, a very strong moment when somebody's passed away. But when you think about it, life is a series of that. All the things that we do that we shouldn't have done, really underneath that is something that we should have done or should have said or a way that we should have loved that we didn't. And it's this mindset that Jesus is calling to when he teaches us to pray that God forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. And that leads us to the, to the next question. Why does Jesus link our forgiveness from God to our forgiveness of others? Well, the second part of this prayer has us link God's forgiveness of us to our forgiveness of others. That is, those who have failed to pay their debt of love to them. Now, we're usually, we usually have a pretty sensitive meter when it comes to detecting when other people have failed to give us something that they should give us by virtue of their relationship with us. We're not near so sensitive in detecting when we have failed to give others what we owe them by virtue of love. But again, it can make it seem like Jesus is saying this is some kind of work by which we must earn forgiveness or some kind of a ritual act which qualifies us forgiveness. But remember again, this is a family prayer. Jesus is not talking about forgiving others as a means of earning or qualifying for our own forgiveness. He's talking about being like the Father into whose family we have been adopted. That's what's going on here. Peter says that one of the reasons God saved us is so that we might be Partakers of the divine nature. That's the language he uses in Second Peter chapter 1. Partakers of the divine nature. If we're the children of the Father, we're supposed to reflect the character of the Father. So taking on the character of the Father, as I've mentioned, is one of Jesus' themes here in the Sermon on the Mount. Now think about it. The head of this family, God the Father, is one who has gone to great lengths. In order to forgive, even though he has never needed forgiveness. Indeed, the father paid a great price, the price of his own son. He paid that price in order to forgive. Thus, we are the family of those who have been forgiven. We are the family of those who have been forgiven. For all the children in this family, save one, Jesus, have been forgiven. Right? We're the family of those who have been forgiven. But even more fundamentally than that, this is the family of those who forgive. Let me explain. First of all, by having our faults not held against us, by God through Christ, we have forfeited, as a matter of fairness, as a matter of equity, any right to hold other people's faults against them. Right? But second, and even more profoundly, we need to understand this, and this is why I say that we are most fundamentally a family of those who forgive. Being forgiven does not make you like the Father but forgiving does. Being forgiven does not make you like the Father. Forgiving does. And that's why we are even more fundamentally the family of those who forgive. Because we were saved so that we might be made like the Father. When we don't forgive our debtors, We are, in effect, renouncing our family membership. We are, in effect, saying, I am not a member of God's family. And if I'm not a member of God's family, then the work of Christ does not pertain to me. We are, in effect, saying, I do not want to be forgiven because I don't like where that goes. Because that means I'm supposed to be like the Father. The father doesn't know what it's like to be forgiven. He doesn't need to be forgiven, but he knows what it's like to forgive. And that brings us to the relationship between faith and repentance. Sometimes in church history, the church has turned repentance into a work by which forgiveness must be earned. But repentance, remember this, repentance is not a work, it is a fruit. It is a fruit of faith Faith always comes first, but genuine faith will always produce the fruit of repentance. Looking to Christ in faith will always produce an ongoing attitude of repentance. How often do you need to repent? How high can you count? Every day, every day, all during the day, there's little ways that we find ourselves thinking in a way that we shouldn't think, feeling in a way that we shouldn't feel, reacting in a way that we shouldn't react, having an attitude that we shouldn't. Maybe it comes out in words, maybe it comes out in actions, but these are all the ways in which we're supposed to have this ongoing attitude of repentance, which is what faith produces. So it's in this context that Jesus tells us plainly that only those who grant forgiveness will receive forgiveness. Now, this is another way of saying that only those who truly trust in Christ will be forgiven. It's another way of saying that. Because if we have been forgiven by Christ, if we have been adopted into this family, if God is our Father, if He sets the character of the family, and we want to be like Him, and He's the one who forgives, then we want to forgive. And that's the way it works. Now that we know what we're praying, what difference does it make? Well, this petition for God to forgive us our debts as we've forgiven our debtors, it assumes that we have a certain sense, a healthy sense, not a morbid sense, of self-awareness in terms of the love that we owe God and others. A morbid self-awareness just means we're into ourselves, okay? Okay. And it doesn't, mean, it doesn't matter if you package being into yourself in holy speak and righteousness, I'm, I'm trying to be holy, or whether you just do it in more blatant selfish terms, being into self in that way is a morbid thing. It's dark down in that basement. The more you rummage around down in there, the darker it's going to get. But we're, we're told to have a self-awareness, we're expected to have a self-awareness here in this sense in terms of the love that we owe to God and others. That kind of self-awareness brings us out of ourselves. It doesn't take us into ourselves. It brings us out. Okay? We're supposed to have this self-awareness in how we love God and others, and we examine ourselves in terms of those affirmative obligations. And if we understand life rightly, and if we understand ourselves rightly, it is to sins of omission that we will first look And if we come to things from this angle, we will see things in their proper context. We will see ourselves more as we truly are, and we will grow in the way that Jesus intends. So, this is the first application that we have from this. This is what Jesus is trying to do when he has us pray this way. He wants to change the way we pray, and in changing the way we pray, he wants to change us. So, And this will affect everything we do. So this week, as you pray, as you pray for forgiveness, pray in this light. And as you think of your life, as you think of your relationships, as you think of your obligations, look at things, don't look at life in terms of all the boundary markers which you're not supposed to step over. Look at life in terms of what you owe to God because of the relationship you have with him And look at life in terms of your relationship with all the people around them and what you owe to them by virtue of the fact that God is your father. You love them as yourself. And think of the obligations of love. Think of what love would do in this context or in that context. I think it will have a revolutionary effect on how we see our lives uh, and how we treat others and how we seek to walk in. With God, um, even some of the other words for sin. We talked about the word debt, which I think, in this light, when you look at the love obligations, it's really the most fundamental concept of sin is a failure to give something that we owe. But even some of the other ones, like the word for trespass. Now, what does trespass suggest to us? Because Jesus talks about trespasses in verse fourteen and fifteen. Trespass means you step some place that you weren't supposed to go, right? That's what you mean. You stepped onto property that's not your property. You stepped onto property you're not supposed to go on. But when you really look at the, the word that's used for trespass, what it really means is a misstep. It doesn't so much mean that you're stepping onto property that's taboo. It means that you're stepping out of the path. You're stepping out of the way that you're supposed to be walking. It's a misstep. So picture, picture a dance, since all these obligations uh, result from relationships. You know, there's a dance that we do with God. That, I mean, I don't mean to trivialize. That's not where I'm going with this. But you can think about it in this way, that life is like a beautiful and intricate dance in the relationships that we have, both with God and with others. You can think of a waltz, or if you want to get energetic, you can think of a swing dance, but you can't just think of a rave, okay? Because a rave is not a dance, Uh, A a real dance requires partners. It requires uh, coordinated action. And whether it's a waltz or a swing dance, if you have a misstep, it's a step that's outside the dance. And it's not just going to mess you up, it's going to mess the other person up as well. It's a misstep. Think about it in that context. Even trespasses, that's not the best word. Because we think of, of, of life as being roped off. And all these places are not supposed to step. No, we need to think more of life as a dance that has certain steps to it. You can think about waltz, you think about swing dance. There's all kinds of steps that are permissible and moves that are permissible on those dances, and there's lots of room for creativity. But then there's certain steps and there's certain moves that just aren't part of the dance. And they're not part of it. And it's not just wrong, it's ugly and it hurts ourselves and messes up the dance for ourselves and for others as well. Now next, this partition also helps us understand why sins and failures that may seem small according to the way that most people view them can be particularly grievous to God. It is always the sin of God's own children that offend and disappoint him. I think disappointment is a good word. Offend and disappoint him the most. And that's because of the special relationship that we bear to God. Disloyalty or unfaithfulness or betrayal by a spouse or a child or close friend is always worse by many times than the same failure by somebody across town. You can read about somebody robbing a bank in New Jersey. That's wrong. doesn't offend you, does it? Doesn't offend you, no. But you can read about Prince Charles dallying with um, whoever that woman was while he was married to on the honeymoon with Lady Di. That's not only wrong, but it makes you mad too, doesn't it? Why is that? Because it's personal. It's relational. And we have to remember that because all of life flows from the love obligations, all sin, they're relational. They're not violations of some cosmic traffic code. It's breaches, it's betrayals of a relationship. As those who have been forgiven and adopted as God's children to his family, we have the most reason to love. Because we have the love of God in Christ... And we have the most resources to love. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We have the Word of God. And we have all the means of grace. And when we look at things from this perspective, we can begin to see how wrong-headed and wrong-hearted it is to think that because our sins are covered in Christ, it doesn't matter how we live. When you see things in this context, you see how crazy it is to think that way. That because we have the love of Christ, it doesn't matter how we live. Because we have the love of Christ, we're able to live in love. That's the whole point. He's bringing us back to something. He doesn't save us and tell us to go stand in the corner and be quiet. He saves us and brings us into his family and says, Walk with me, do what I do, and live this way with regard to one another. So as you pray this week, pray in this light. Think in this light. As you live this week, as you relate to one another, wherever you are, relate in terms of the love obligations, the joyous, good, everlasting debt, which is love. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen.